structure and so you'd bang on it a little while and you'd adjust the antenna that was on the top and if you were really tricky you knew that at the back of the TV were some other adjustments that you could stretch one way or stretch the other way and so what we decided to do is we would mess it all up and then we would have to adjust the set. Is that not, no. Turn it off? No, this is fine. This is fine. You don't mind me uh, coming into the audience and interviewing you in a little bit, so. <laughs> Listen, if there's anything a preacher learns, and that is adapt, okay? So, um, anyway, so we would adjust the set so that it looked funny, and then my dad would go, what is wrong with the TV? And we had to adjust our set. So tonight, I may look wider than your normal preacher, or I may not look as smart as your regular preacher. Do not adjust your sets. That's just the way that I look. I, I, was, I was so encouraged coming in tonight. I had one of our shepherds said, you know, we've been out here discussing whether or not we're going to stay or leave. I thought that was very encouraging. <laughs> I had someone else said, uh, oh, you're speaking tonight. Where's David? When is he coming back? Okay, I thought that was encouraging. And then there was the one that uh, said, I'm just going to wait in the car until you're done because you need a ride home. Well, thank you, honey. I appreciate that comment <laughs> as well. No, I always hated when my favorite television program was interrupted. I always hated when there was some special program, maybe it was a news bulletin, or there was some kind of special holiday event that messed up my regular television program. And so tonight, we're not going to mess up David's series of Seeing God on TV. We're going to continue that series. We're going to do so because as David expressed over the last few weeks that the idea is this. And that is that we should, as God believers, Jesus followers, Bible readers, we should constantly be looking for and seeing God because he's everywhere. Most certainly we see him in the creation. We see him in gatherings like this on the faces of our brethren. But I will tell you too that God finds his ways into all sorts of places. In life circumstances and life events and yes, even on TV. And so tonight, we're going to see if there's not just a lesson or two from us to learn, not so much from TV, but perhaps it is that TV has accentuated those things for us. So tonight, I wanted to invite you to one of the most familiar addresses in all of TV history, and that is 1313 Mockingbird Lane in Mockingbird Heights somewhere. No one really knows where it is. Of course, it is the home of the Munsters. And my appreciation to the family member here at Memorial who volunteered their family picture for my sled presentation tonight. But that's all right. The Schusters are a wonderful family, and I appreciate No, that's not true. You all know this family, or at least many of you do. The Munsters was a sitcom that ran from 1964 to 1966, about 70-plus or minus episodes, and it was the story of what would seem to be a normal suburban family, except they were anything but normal. They were a somewhat benign but monstrous, at least in their appearance and in their perspective, family. There was uh, Herman Munster, played by the actor Fred Gwynn, there was uh, Yvonne DiCarlo, a beautiful woman and a great actress who played his wife, Lily. There was a young man by the name of Butch Patrick that played their young son, Eddie. 
Then there was a guy by the name of Al Lewis who was went on to be a baseball scout. Go figure that out. And he played Grandpa Munster. And then, of course, there was, who could forget, Marilyn. In fact, not just any Marilyn. She was ugly Marilyn. And I don't mean to be mean, but uh, this particular role, which was played by two different actresses, the first actress left after 13 episodes because she got homesick for her boyfriend. And she cried, they said, all during filming. And so they sent her off back home and they hired someone, not simply because of their appearance, but it just so happened she was the perfect size to fit the costumes that they had already made. And so this particular actress played Marilyn for the majority of the series. And you're thinking, but why do you call her Marilyn? And that is our ugly Marilyn. That is because that was the running joke of the show. Lily one time said, she's not very attractive. She's kind of the ugly duckling of the family. In fact, the closest thing to her Aunt Lily ever got her compliment, she says, oh, Marilyn, those circles under your eyes, how beautiful you look today. I appreciate the remark of Grandpa, who was always mixing up some kind of potion regarding Marilyn. He said, this potion will work on Marilyn for sure. If it works as good as it did on Elizabeth Taylor, it's going to work for her. You can take from that whatever you would like. But the idea was simply this, that though Marilyn was beautiful by what we would consider conventional terms, she was to her family unattractive. There was something different and unappealing. And though they loved her because she was their niece, she was one who was considered just a bit ugly. And so tonight what I want to do is I want to talk to all of you ugly Marilyns out there. And all the ugly Franks and all the ugly Freds and all the ugly others. Because at some point in time, no doubt, all of us have felt ugly. It might be the ugly that comes because those who are around us don't see us as beautiful. Or it is a standard that they set for us. Maybe it is that they view our appearance as unseemly or our social or economic status as unsightly. Perhaps it is we don't wear the latest or greatest or we don't participate in something that they think is all important. And so as a result of it, those who are around us set the bar, a bar often that is unrealistic and at best it is insufficient. But we live for that. We live to be pleasing. We live to be popular. We live to be those that are accepted for those around us because nobody wants to be an ugly Marilyn. And sometimes it is that the ugly comes from us. That is the fact that we set a standard that we could never reach, an unrealistic standard. Perhaps it's been shaped by the world in which we live in or the media or the television or some other popular means of communication and as a result of that we see ourselves as ugly and then we become disappointed in ourselves we become discouraged with ourselves we even can become depressed all because we think and we see ourselves as ugly Marilyn this morning or this evening I want to share with you five truths that I think will help all of us when we see ourselves at the ugly, as an ugly Marilyn. And the first of those is simply the one that's up right here. And that's how others see you.
does not affect how God sees you. We think about a, a story that occurs in John chapter 9. We're not going to turn there, but let me just relay the story to you. Jesus and his disciples, they encounter a blind man, a man who has been blind for, since birth. And there are a number of perspectives about this blind man. If we had the time, we'd go in great, great detail. But here are some of the things that the disciples that are with Jesus, they see this man as kind of a religious question. He's a doctrinal issue they ask regarding the young man. Who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? Considering a thought of the day that malady, whatever that was, had some direct connection to a sinful act. There were those who were his, um, I guess we'd say his peers, those who were like him in the neighborhood that looked at him and said, oh yes, let's look through him as a social status, right? Or at a physical disability. He's a blind man. Oh yes, he's the one that used to sit and beg. We had the Pharisees had a view of him. They saw him as a real difficulty and problem because as the story unfolds, he is made to see. And so this is going to cause some problems because Jesus did this and they want to squelch this Jesus business uh, as much as they can. And so they look at this young man not for the miracle that he manifested or was manifested in him, but that he simply was what? Uh, uh, he's a problem. He's a problem that we have to solve. Even his own parents, when they're drug in before the authorities and asked, they simply say, uh, he's of age. What he did, what he's done is not on us. He needs to pay for his own debts, whatever that is. He is our son. He was blind, but beyond that, take it up with him to alienate themselves from their son who now can see after all these years is a pitiful situation. But sometimes we look at all of these things and we think about all of the titles and all of the labels that people might put upon us. And whether we want to admit it or not, we know that there are times when people will make those names. They'll say, you're silly. Only they use the old S word, which we can't say anymore. I don't know what we say when somebody's that kind of person, but they're not very smart, right? Or, you know what, you're ugly, or you're fat, or you're this, or you're that. Maybe even you have felt that in regards to your walk. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, that's right, you don't do this. Oh, that's right, you can't do that. That's right, you always have to go to church on Sunday, whatever it is. And you have felt belittled. You have, been, you have felt devalued. And that's really what happens to this particular blind man. It's not the way that Jesus sees him. But we're going to look at that in just a little bit as to what it is. I, I want you to consider maybe a little bit about our inerrant value from the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church in Corinth. Now, I will give you that he is talking about the function of the body, the church. But I think that he shares with us some principles that are valuable for us even beyond that so-called organizational or functional structure. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 16. And he, using this illustration or this analogy of the body, he says, And the ear should not say, because I am not the eye, am not part of the body. Is it not for any reason less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he has decided. And if there were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. Now listen carefully 
to how Paul describes the value of each and every person. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Continuing on, he says, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members, the New American Standard renders it, members come to have more abundant seemliness. Simply put, he said is, it is not the view of everyone around us that declares our value. That it is not the significance that someone puts on you, the significance that someone puts on me, whether outside the body or inside, that determines my value. It is not enough for us simply to say, well, they said about me or they think this about me. Paul says, listen, in the body of Christ, and I think he speaks in a much broader sense as well, each of us are unique. Each of us have been created by God very specifically. And however that manifested itself in its physicality, or perhaps by choices or life circumstances, it has placed us there. God doesn't see us any less than what we really are. And listen what we are. We are his children that have been created in his image. And that, in that, there is a purpose that he can fulfill through us. It's important for us to see that how people see us is really irrelevant. And there is greater consequence in how it is that God uh, sees us. Number two, however, and that is how you see others does affect how God sees you. You know, we're real quick to uh, uh, shoot for that standard that we can't reach, but we are even quicker to become the standard itself. In other words, sometimes we look at people with the same glaring judgmental eyes that we feel cast at us and that we say, you know what, I don't like that. And whether it's some kind of transference or it's some kind of coping mechanism or if it's just plain old ugly down inside of us, it comes out when we begin to put those labels on other people. We begin to say they're not of any value, they're not uh, important, it doesn't really matter. And the perspective is that they're unimportant or somehow they are less than we are. You notice that it is the same problem just shaped different. The first problem, and that is how others live, uh, uh, others treat us or how they look at us, sets them as the standard, and as wrong as that is, so is this. And that is when we see others by a standard that we've established. Jesus Christ himself, when asked, what is the greatest commandment? Matthew records the answer that he gives. He says, love God fully. But he doesn't end the question or the answer to the question right there. He says, and equal to that, and that's a significant phrase within this particular context. He says, of equal importance is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Let me see if I can't very quickly walk you through the theology of that. It means this, that God said, loving me is on a parallel significance and an equal status to loving others. 
Sometimes we spend a lot of time focused, and rightly so, on what we might call our vertical relationship with God. We talk about being pleasing in God's sight, bringing glory to God, listening to God, talking to God, walking with God. And Jesus says that is all important, but of equal importance is how it is that we treat other people. In fact, I would conclude, and you can argue if you'd like, but then you'd be wrong, and well, anyway... And that is the fact that our vertical relationship is most certainly determined or can be detrimental based upon the horizontal relationship we have with people. We simply cannot say we love God who we haven't seen and we hate our brother or our brethren or our neighbor who we have seen. You just can't do it. And so it's really important that as much as we think about us and don't like when people pick on us and when people view us that way, that we don't put those shoes on our own feet and become judgmental about how others feel. Sometimes it is easy for us to become so sensitive to the way that we have been treated that we become insensitive to the way that we treat others. And it is significantly important for us to realize that in God's eyes, those individuals are just as important. The third truth that I want to share with you is, oh, let me, let me just real quick go back to, real quick, quick, go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I think I have the slide there. I read it, but let me highlight it. Going back to verse 16, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were the hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. So here's the point. He says what? You don't decide the value, and others don't decide the value. I decide the value of each. And so that brings us to our third truth, our third principle here as I have it. You show it up here on the screen. It's coming. Hold on. It'll be there. Okay, then I'm just going to have to read it. And that is how it is that others or, or how God sees you should affect how you see yourself. Right? How you see yourself. Or, or excuse me. Uh, there we go. Thank you. God, don't back me up or we'll be here all night long. Okay. How God sees you should affect how you see yourself. I think we skipped one there. Can you guys back up one more for me, please? One more. There we go. We're zooming ahead. I just don't want you to get lost. Because as I used to have a preacher friend that used to say this, he always say, number next. So anyway, let's just go from here. Uh, and that is the fact that how you see others uh, uh, does affect that and how you see yourself. And then how God sees you should affect how you see yourself and how you see others. Let me just tell you how God values people. I don't know if you know this, whether you're talking about cars or coins or antique or art, art and artifacts, it's simply this. And that is the value of an item is in direct correlation to the price that one is willing to pay for it. You might look at a piece of art and say, I don't get it. But somebody gets it to the tune of multiple thousands of dollars, perhaps even millions of dollars. And you say, what makes that so valuable? It could be the brushstroke. It could be the size of the canvas. It could be the subject matter interpreted through the eyes of the artist. But you know what makes it valuable? 
the price that someone is willing to pay for it. A coin, a an antique, a car are all the same. Here's the value. If you want to see the price tag, pick up your foot. On the bottom is a sticker that says, here's your value. You're, those of you who are looking on your bottom of your feet, <laughs> metaphorical, but that's this. The price that was paid for you is the life of Jesus Christ himself. Unless you think that somehow it was based upon your value, lest you think that it was based upon something you had accomplished, if you will, that it was placed upon your worth, you need to understand what the Apostle Paul told the church in Rome in Rome, Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. He says, while you were ugly, while you were broken, the text actually says, while you were weak and weakened as sinners, Christ died for you. I was uh, telling someone here um, a few weeks ago, and they thought it was funny, that when my great-grandmother died, they put a number of her personal possessions on the dining room table, allowing each of the great-grandchildren and the grandchildren to go and select. There was, a, as my mom relays the story, I was pretty young at the time, but, you know, there was a candy dish or there was a knick-knack that she had. And, and so I had the opportunity to go over and pick two items that I thought would be prized possessions. And so here's what I brought back. I brought back a little ceramic donkey that had no head. and the bowl of a pipe, a smoking pipe, for those of you who are good Christian folks. It didn't even have the stem. It couldn't be used for anything. And those were the remembrances of my great-grandmother. And all I could think of is, why hadn't she thrown the donkey away? And what was great-grandma Silva doing without, I mean, with that pipe? I don't know. But my mother is holding on to them, and I'm going to get my legacy one day. <laughs> but that's how we were. All of us were on that big dining room table of life, and there wasn't any value in us whatsoever. We were broken. We were marred. We were marked. We were dis disturbing to look at. We were ugly Marilyn and everything else, and yet God finally said, hey, let me show you your real value. I am re your real value. I am willing to pay for you. And so, as it says on the screen, thank you guys for catching us up there, how God sees you should affect how you see others because guess what? You're not the only one he paid that price for. Every person, you see them under the overpass, you see them uh, in the checkout stand. You see them driving poorly on the highway. You see them as your dirty neighbor or your, uh, the individuals that are disruptive at school. You see those behind prison bars. And guess what? God said every single one of them had the value enough that I was willing to pay my son for them. That changes how we look. That changes how we look at the world. That changes even the way that we not only perceive everybody else, but it's the way that we should see ourselves. Now, don't get high and mighty. Don't get too prideful about that. 
God cautions us and warns us because, well, there's a little word that we use in, in the Bible teaching because it makes us look like we're really smart, at least Bible teachers and preachers, and that's the word justification or justified. I remember when I was a boy that they would describe the word, they said justified means just as if I'd never sinned. God saw me, thanks to the work of Jesus Christ, just as if I'd never sinned. And then someone shared this thought with me. He goes, that's not right. He sees you, the dirty thing that you are. He sees all of your sin, but he is willing to accept the sacrifice of Jesus when there is not one thing about you that deserves that sacrifice. I don't know about you, but that changes the way I see those who are around me. That changes the way that I look at myself. Oh, I'm still dirty, meaning I'm the one who was unworthy. I'm now cleansed and only made worthy by the work of Jesus Christ. But it is from a standpoint of saying, you know what? I need to recognize and realize my real place. I need to recognize that I am certainly not as high as I think I am and that everyone around me isn't as low as I think they are. It is why I chose a very brief uh, uh, scripture reading tonight because it simply was the, the thing that the Apostle Paul said when he looked. He says, listen, we no longer look at individuals from a fleshly perspective. Do I still see Jerry and recognize Jerry for how Jerry looks? Of course I do. Do I still look at his wife, his lovely wife, Gwen, and know who she is? Yes, but you know what? I see far deeper than the skin. Why? Because the skin isn't who they are. Oh, that may be who they are for a moment, but I know that there's something more to them, that there's more to individuals, and there's even, and I say it with great humility, there's more to me than just what people see. And so we begin to say, but how can God do that? Because we know that God knows everything we've done publicly and everything we've done privately. I mean, part of the problem that we struggle with is we all look at our own self-values. What? I know the dirty side of me. I know my thoughts. I know my illicit desires. I know the things that I have done in secret that nobody knows about. And I know that God knows that. Isn't that a wonderful thing about God's love? Is that it's easy to love someone who you like. It's easy to love someone who looks beautiful. It's easy to love someone who does all the right things. But how about loving the unlovable? And that's what God did. God said, I know every single thing about you. And I love you enough to give you my son or give my son up for you. That gives us incredible value. And that should give us a renewed spirit. And that should give us an opportunity to say, you know what? I'm not going to look at myself and I'm not going to look at the world anymore from a human perspective. I'm going to look through Jesus' eyes. It's really important that we recognize that even Paul said, as he wrote those particular words, he said this. He said, you know what? When he first came on the scene, when he first appeared, when he began to walk first through those streets of Jerusalem and along the River Jordan and up in Galilee, we saw Jesus from the flesh. 
We saw his appearance, and though it's not described in Scripture for us, we know that it wasn't overly appealing, or at least it wasn't significant as to turn the head of a passerby. Paul says there was a time when we saw Jesus in the flesh and from a fleshly perspective, but we do not see him that way anymore. In other words, how mistaken we were to see no further than what was on the outside and the same, I think, can be said for us as well. If you will, advance the slide. There's a beautiful picture of Herman Munster, and he is holding his son Eddie on his lap. I say a beautiful picture. It's frightening nonetheless. But this is a quote from the television program in which Herman Munster pulls Eddie up on his lap, and he says, The lesson I want you to learn is that it doesn't matter what you look like. You could be short or fat or thin, or ugly, or handsome like your father. You can be black, or yellow, or white, it doesn't matter. But what does matter is the size of your heart and the strength of your character. That's great, and I appreciate the amen, but I think that there is an addendum needed there. That there's something else that needs to be said, and that's this. Here is what really matters. What really matters is, first of all, that you look like Jesus. I don't just mean acting like Jesus. I don't just mean your behavior is a reflection of Jesus. I don't just mean that you're a follower of Jesus, but those are certainly true. But I mean that you need to look the way Jesus looks. You need to see the way that Jesus sees. Do I look like Jesus and I, do I see like him? The question I guess David would end with is this. Do you? Do you look like Jesus looks and do you see like he sees? For me, it's kind of like when I go, um, my wife has in our bathroom, she has this magnifying mirror. And you know what it magnifies? Every ugly thing on my face. In fact, I forbid her to look at it lest she find something in her perfection. But when I look in there, there is everything. There is gray. There is wrinkle. There is mole. There is blemish. There is everything. And that's looking like the world looks. Where with a giant magnifying mirror or magnifying glass, we look at everybody's lives and we look at our own instead of looking through the blood of Jesus. In John chapter 9, Jesus' answer to the disciples when they said, Who sinned this man or his parents that they should be born blind? He said it was neither this man nor his parents, but the wor that the works of God might be made manifest in him. That is what God sees in and from you. A place in which he might work through you. It's how he sees those who are around us. An opportunity for his uh, work and his power to come out before them. And that makes everyone precious. Now certainly he sees that which is not good within us. He knows when we've sinned and he made account for that by offering his son. But that requires access to that blood. And we often say it as if it is rote, as if it is merely clinical, as if it is sterile and without significance. But it's of great significance. 
you want God to see you perfect, then you're perfected by the blood of Jesus. Blood that we come in contact with when we surrender ourselves to him, when we're buried in the waters of baptism. David does such a good job of reminding each and every one of us that every week about the significance of that. And that is part of what is important. But for those of you who said, I've already taken that step. I've done what I'm supposed to. Well, then now is the time for you to continue to do so. Tonight, it may be that your response during our invitation song is a rededication. For others of you, it may very well be that you've come to a place when you said, hey, I want to look clean, and I only I can because of Jesus. And if you do want to make that decision tonight, we want to help you in any way we can. If there's a prayer request that you have or some other need, just let us know. Come on down. We will not embarrass you. I promise you that. Let's stand and encourage one another as we sing.